Okay, so it is Saturday, March 7th. I am still in lovely Santa Maria in the Fairfield Inn and Suites where I am hoping to goodness the housekeepers don't flip on a vacuum next door. If they do, I'll rush to pause and pick it up again. But as you know, this is live and I don't edit because, well, who has time for that? Anyway, I wanted to let you know that um, first things, a little housekeeping right up front. If you follow me on Twitter, you yesterday saw that I posted maybe my most favorite food on earth. It's a pedophore from Olson's Bakery in Solvang. I consider it an impressionist painting for my mouth. The one that I love the most that I posted a picture of is a raspberry almond mini cake with a sweet cream on top that forms the most delicious sugar bomb I've ever had. And I first ate one in about seventh grade where my friends, um, Aaron Kinchlow's family, took me to Solvang for a Christmas trip and I got introduced to pedophores and oh my God, they're the best. So if you're ever in Solvang, shout out to Olson's on uh, the main drag through town and it is absolutely positively worth it. It's, and they have many other kinds too, as, as my friend Heidi would readily point out, she doesn't even like the kind I like. She doesn't know what she's missing. That's her fault. Anyway, you can always follow me on Twitter. It's at jcarroll, twitter.com forward slash jcarroll. And you can see me real time <laughs> do dumb things. So that's what Twitter's for. I love it. It's a little bit political. It's a little bit current events, the whole thing. We talk a lot about coronavirus because I'm worried about my mom. And so um, that's just one piece of housekeeping. Another piece of housekeeping has to do with the response to yesterday's podcast. And I'm going to start with a little personal story. In high school, at Buena High School in Ventura, in 10th grade and 11th grade, I was class president. I know, you're shocked. I loved it. I think I was born to work. And I loved being both in service, but also having that kind of power. I mean, it was not a lot of power, but I certainly had privileges. And I, I just loved serving as class president and coming up with ideas and innovating and all those things you get to do in a position of leadership. In the spring of my junior year, I ran for ASB president, student body president, for those of you that don't know how odd California schools work. But we had a really, really good, strong leadership class there. And our leader was, our um, adult sponsor was Bob Kuzar, who I've spoken about in my blog because he really, he just, he was had such an impact on my life. His belief in me and his willingness to teach young people how to lead and how to be generous and listen to others and serve the needs of a diverse community. He, he was just a powerful influence in my, in my life. Anyway, I lost that election for ASB president and it was devastating. Nothing will cause you to check yourself by more than having the people that you thought believed in you change their minds. So, okay, grown, fast forward. What I, I, I wanted to stay in leadership and Mr. Buffin, who led the journalism class at Boyna at the time, suggested that I pick up the leadership position that was a um, non-voting member of cabinet, but who would report on what cabinet was doing. We were super progressive at that time, if you think about it, because today we, our current government keeps the press at arm's length. But at that time, as a member of the journalism um, class, I guess it was, I could sit in cabinet, be on the leadership, be in leadership, but I just wouldn't have any voting privileges. That turned out to be amazing for me. He was brilliant because I then became an investigative reporter. 
Shocking, I know, again. Now, when I look back, it's like, oh, Jen, the story was so told before you even started. And the best story I broke was a story on the hazing that was going on for, I think it was called Boys League, Boys something. Uh, it, it was, there was actually a cabinet position um, that was for this. And and it was, I, I was good friends with the people that were doing it. But what I had discovered in the underneath the veneer of being this strong positive organization is there was hazing that happened if you were to join and I did investigative research and people told me the truth and I was able to publish a fairly shocking story on the hazing that was happening that um, that changed the way things worked at Boyna after that after I, I was able to um, reveal that story so needless to say I have always had a soft spot for journalists I, I have so much respect because um, I, I feel like they do a job that currently now is thankless unless it's um, now providing information that we're not getting from our leaders. But journalists, they work hard and it, it's become readily apparent to me that they are often the allies and advocates for those of us who don't have a voice. So yes, I speak up because I was trained and that's I know how to do it and I'm, you know, got my master's degree in communications. So I, I feel very confident with my ability to speak and understand messaging, but a lot of people don't know how to do that. It's it's terrifying. Public speaking is terrifying for them. So journalists become our allies and they can say for us the things that we could cannot otherwise say. And that's absolutely happened with this case. In fact, I sometimes feel really uh, self-conscious and a little bit um, guilty that I go out and talk to the media after the hearings because it looks like I'm a media hog. And okay, maybe I am. But what's happened because of that is I've built these relationships with the journalists and that has been a two-way relationship. I share information with them and they've also shared information with us. Some of us that aren't in the headlines also have relationships with the press, and they, it's been really powerful. It's helped us know what to pay attention to, what to ignore. It's given us warning when something's going to happen that we don't know about. So I just want you to consider that next time you think about bashing the news. I'm not saying everybody's perfect, and I'm not saying that mistakes aren't made, but I am saying that journalism is a, such, it's called the fourth estate for a reason. It is such an important part of a country that finds itself on democratic principles and on the idea of free speech and this commitment to law and following laws. So keep that in mind because here's what happened. Here's just an example of how that's worked. Gay reached out to me and told me she did actually hear from the Sacramento DA's office and the San Joaquin DA's office after her statement was shared with Brandy at KCRA. Now, we don't know if Brandy called them and asked about it or what happened next. We haven't heard from Brandy on that front, but that's the example of where a journalist can actually, by asking some questions, can actually pry loose information that can make a difference. And so I wanted to share that with you so you can understand how, how journalism is an important part of this whole case. Okay, okay, so let's dive into today, today's deep dive. But uh, just keep, keep in mind, just follow your journalists, support your journalists, and always support uh, your local paper because it's, it's vitally important to the success of, of our country. <laughs> Please cue the American music right now. Oh my God, I feel like I just got on a soapbox, but it's kind of one of my soapboxes, so I did. So today's deep dive, first of all, it's not bugle, Jennifer Carroll, it's 
buckle. I went ahead and looked up the word and found out how to say it, and it's buckle. And today we're going to talk about the prosecution's request for additional buckle swabs, which means swabs of the cheek. Buckle is relating to the cheek. So now you know a new word, and it's spelled B-U-C-C-A-L. And the request for additional five additional buckle swabs of DNA from D'Angelo. This motion was filed because their request was uh, fought by the defense. The defense said nope, and they got the judge to agree to hold on the subpoena for additional swabs until the hearing that's happening this Thursday. So this is the thing that we're going to hear about this Thursday. It's coming up. It's on the docket. And uh, I'm going to start with just uh, to refresh your memory about why this DNA is so important. In Science Magazine, I hope I have that right. I think it's Science Magazine. Jocelyn Kaiser, back in 2018, when this Golden State Killer case was first breaking and the story of the DNA was breaking, wrote a really interesting article. And it was based on some research that was done after this arrest to understand really what, what were the risks to humans, to our privacy, based on this kind of DNA collection and this kind of DNA match that was done on GED Jed Match, which was which is an open source site. It's not like 23andMe or Ancestry. Those are different and their process is different. Jed Match is where you actually upload your DNA code into their open source and see if you have matches. So they did some research and this is the headline from the story. We will find you. DNA search used to dab Golden State Killer can home in on about 60% of white Americans. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of why it's white Americans or it's not. I'm sure most of us can draw some some conclusions on there because that's not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story here is that this new study found by combining anonymous DNA samples with some basic information as someone, like, say, for example, someone's age, um, research can narrow, researchers can narrow down that person's identity to, 20, to fewer than 20 people by starting with a DNA database of just 1.3 million individuals. Now I'm saying just 1.3 million because in the United States we have about 337 million human beings. And so if that is really what, 1%? No, it's not even that. It's like a half a percent of our population of the United States. And, and if you're white, they can find you, narrow it down to about 20 people. That results in the identification, if you do the math, as they did here for the story, of about 60% of white Americans, just from a DNA sample. So what they're projecting is that very soon, and maybe, gosh, it's just two years later, right? It, it may be everyone. If you are a white person in America, it may be every, everyone. And so this is important because it also involves the the idea of privacy and what is yours and what belongs to someone else. And so as you think about yourself doing these DNA tests, realize you're contributing now to having privacy limited as you go forward. I understand the importance in crime solving, but you need to balance that with what you are willing to give up in terms of your privacy. The DNA loaded that was loaded to Jed match was is was really it's a free online database. So 23andMe and Ancestry are not the same, and they have a different legal um, requirement, a different legal agreement when you use those services. And then from what I was reading in some other reading I was doing, they use a different approach to how they look at the DNA, and they would not be able to process a 
I'm going to call it a half-assed sample, a, a less than perfect sample, say not something taken from a buckle swab, but something maybe taken off, I don't know, a Kleenex. And so those two services wouldn't be able to do that level of matching. The reason GEDmatch works is because it's got it's running straight on pure DNA code, and I guess it gives the researchers a better way of finding out where the matches are. Okay, so this is just this. I wanted to just bring this up because this is the precursor to what we're heading into at the hearing this week, Thursday at one thirty. We're going to be the, the motion for the additional buckle swabs is going to be what's going to be is going to be um, heard. And what I'm going to share with you today is ha what happened and what's going on. And actually, in reading this response, the the motion and the this is the response from the prosecution to the motion to um, deny the the ad additional DNA. I found some things in here I did I did not know. So I'm going to call that out when I get to it. And it really surprised me. But I also wanted to give you a feel for the kind of language that's being used and how. The prosecutors are arguing these motion, arguing against these motions from the defense. So that's what we'll do in today's podcast. It, I find it fascinating. I uh, hope you do too. And you can just sit back and listen, and I'll try to um, tell you about the areas of emphasis with emphasis so you can understand uh, the things that might be new. The first is that this is, of course, the people of the state of California against Joseph D'Angelo and the notice of a motion and motion to compel the taking of the buccal swabs from the defendant. And the hearing, of course, is this Thursday at 1.30 in Department 61. That is the the main jail courtrooms that are downstairs. They come, I guess, the, the prisoners come down in an elevator and can be escorted right into those cages that you've seen uh, either on my blog or even in the news, the cage that D'Angelo stands in. So here's the introduction. And this is really the rationale for why they need more DNA. I know I asked, I said, uh, it's March of 2020. Why are we asking for more now? Well, based on this information, now I understand. So here's why they're asking. The people need five buckle swabs from the defendant in order to directly compare his reference DNA sample with crime scene samples previously analyzed by Contra Costa County Crime Laboratory, Ventura County Crime Laboratory, Orange County Crime Lab, the California Department of Justice Crime Lab on behalf of Santa Barbara County, and and they go on to explain that even after a case is filed, regardless of the penalty, the law allows the prosecution to obtain additional, this is interesting, non-testimonial evidence to prove its case. Okay, so this isn't evidence based on testimony. This is evidence based on, um, in this case, DNA. Nothing cited by the defendant holds otherwise. This additional investigative step lawfully pursued will save hours, if not days, of court time and prevent the confusion of the jury and save thousands of dollars in expert witness fees. Okay, that's pretty solid. The prosecution, um, the prosecution was informed that the court, the judge, had signed an ex parte order for the, from, from the defendant based on the defendant's motion. So essentially the defense said, no, we don't want to do it. An ex parte means it just happened out of court. And the, the judge went ahead and signed it. And he basically granted a stay to say that they could not take this evidence. The order stated, good cause appearing, the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office and its agents, including the Sacramento County Sheriff, 
Ventura, and other prosecutors and law enforcement agencies are hereby ordered not to obtain any further evidence from the defendant until this case, until this case, I'm sorry, in this case, further until order of the court. So that was the shocker. That was the thing that made this motion become a big deal, is that the judge said they couldn't move forward. So the prosecution is now going to refute the factual allegations con uh, that contained in the defendant's case. So what D'Angelo's attorneys have said, the prosecution is going to refute them, and that's what I'm going to share with you here, so that they, and to correct the defendant's, defendant's misstatements and omissions. So what they're going to argue here now, coming up next, oh my God, I lost my place, um, if you could see what I was working with, uh, and, they're, and they're going to, and the whole point is they want to, um, they're going to refute these allegations, and then they're going to make the case for why they need this DNA. Okay, we'll get to my next section. Here's what's hard to read when I read these things is they go in now and they start talking about, um, they're going to start to talk about the cases and I'll tell you more. Okay, let me start at the beginning. Introduction. The people need five buckle swabs from the defendant to directly compare reference DNA with the crime scene examples. This is legally pursued and any further evidence from the defendant, uh, I'm sorry, and the prosecution refutes the incorrect factual allegations contained in the defendant's motion. So they're even arguing that the defendant has the defendant, the lawyers for the defendant have included some stuff that's not true. And so here we go. Here's the factual summary. DNA evidence collected from eight separate crime scenes identified the defendant as the perpetrator of these and other crimes. Recounted briefly here for purposes of this motion only, as they were addressed in detail in the affidavit previously submitted under seal, DNA evidence was collected from crimes that occurred in Contra Costa, Ventura, Orange, and Santa Barbara counties. These crimes were properly joined with and charged in Sacramento County and formed the basis of the prosecution's current request to obtain additional buckle swabs from the defendant. Okay, I want to read... A footnote that's on this page because it it takes my breath away and I think every time I read a, a passage like this I either want to cry or scream and and I know those of you following the case feel the same but here's the footnote and it is when it says it, it comes off of the sentence that says identified as defendant as a perpetrator of these and other crimes here are the other crimes beginning with the murder of Claude Snelling on a September 11th 1975 and proceeding chronologically, there are 62 crime scenes across 13 counties tied by DNA or other means to the defendant. Let me just take a minute because someone on Twitter asked, what are the other means that might bind him to these crimes? Of course, we know the knot was a signature knot. His um, MO was to place dishes or some sort of thing that would make noise on the husband so the husband or boyfriend could not move or he would hear them and he would threaten to kill them both. He had a, his MO included eating in, in these places. He would sit down and have himself a snack or a meal. It involved typically separating the woman from others so that she was being raped alone in that moment and then brought back to 
potentially her partner or her children. There are a lot of signatures of his crimes that aren't necessarily DNA. So keep that in mind when you, when you hear or other means. So let me, I'll start again because that's really important. Beginning with the murder of Claude Snelling on September 11th, 1975, and proceeding chronologically, there are 62 crime scenes across 13 counties tied by DNA or other means to the defendant. Some scenes involved multiple victims, including young children, and in total, they comprised well over 100 criminal acts of burglary, assault by means of force, robbery, Oh, I'm sorry, assault by means of force likely to produce great bodily injury, injury, rape, sodomy, forcible oral copulation, forcible digital penetration, kidnapping, robbery, false imprisonment, attempted murder, and or murder, along with numerous other associated and or lesser included offenses. That is one hell of a sentence. While the guilt phase of this trial will encompass only the 26 counts currently charged on the complaint um, and the select number of crimes the prosecution will seek to introduce under evidence, this motion only addresses the crimes from which DNA evidence was derived as they form the basis for the prosecution's request. This motion does not in any way limit the crimes the the prosecution intends to introduce in either guilt or penalty phase should and should not be read as such. So they're basically saying this is for these 23 counts, 26 counts, sorry, 26 counts, I think it is. And yeah, they may have other charges. Those might actually come up and be used either in the guilt phase or the penalty phase as additional crimes. So that's the first time I've read that. I think that's um, that's that's telling. We haven't really heard, especially after I talked yesterday about how victims are starting to feel like we're getting grouped into subgroups. A lot of the victims don't have a way to charge him because of the statute of limitations, but it sounds like it's still not off the table. But right now we're talking about the DNA and we're talking about those charges where he is linked by DNA. So that's what this motion is about. Okay, so then the motion goes on to cite eight of the charges where DNA was collected and it describes in detail what happened to the victims. And I got to tell you, in there, there's descriptions of what happened to my dad and Charlene. And every time... I see those descriptions, it gets me every, every time. In fact, when I was preparing last night, just taking a look at what this motion was about, and I let out a gasp, and I'm in this hotel room, and Heidi heard me gasp, and she's like, what, what? And I go, it just, ugh, it's just here again. It's here again what happened to them. Just the parts that we know, but it's still enough. Um, I The first time I really understood what happened to them was in the preliminary trial that happened for Joe Alsip in Ventura. I, because we weren't told a lot about how they died, um, I, I really had the need to know. I, I obtained, I went ahead and ordered the transcript of the hearing and it included a lot of information about their autopsies. And I had that for years and I still think it must be at my house somewhere, but I haven't found it yet. Um, that doesn't mean I have a big house. It actually means I just have a junky house. But uh, yes, the reason it was important for me to know, though, is because we didn't know what happened. Um, you'd be surprised how many people in law enforcement and grown-ups, because I think I was still perceived as a kid, hold back the truth in an effort to protect you. And I'm going to use air quotes, protect us. Except 
Um, and, and I guess that's really important for some people, but for somebody raised by a lawyer where everything was fact-based, um, we were all about facts. Like if you said it in today's vernacular, it, you didn't go accuse someone of something unless you had the receipts. I mean, that you had to have the evidence. If you were asserting something was wrong, you had to have the evidence in our household to prove that that person was wrong. So that sounds really awful. Uh, it kind of just all made sense to me growing up. Like you just don't say things about people unless you have evidence. So <laughs> I laugh because this is probably the reason I uh, went to task with every principal of every school I ever attended starting in third grade. Uh, oh yeah, I was, I had no fear of telling an adult that they were wrong. And then I would explain to them how they were wrong. Imagine how much love I got for that. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Anyway, they just said, uh, that's Jennifer. Um, okay, so <laughs> back to the motion. So the prosecutors, the prosecutors now are have laid out the relevance by citing the crimes, but here's the why. So first they're saying, here are the crimes that have DNA on and that's why this is relevant. But now let's talk about why this is so important. This is called, this is section B, DNA comparisons. The above eight DNA samples were later found to identify the same person. But getting to this result was a time-consuming and complicated process involving multiple crime labs and dozens of people. After each crime described above, each county where the crime occurred analyzed its own forensics using the unknown crime scene sample. Over the ensuing years, emphasis on ensuing years, decades, honestly, the DNA profiles obtained from each of the crime scenes were compared against each other in a variety of ways. And then they list, they go through a detailed explanation of how each of the jurisdictions burned through the DNA evidence they had as they were painstakingly going through steps to connect cold cases to one another, of course, down in Southern California, and then they were comparing in Northern California because in Northern California, interesting enough, there was a much more of an MO. He was very consistent in Northern California. If uh, you're a criminal minds watcher, I, I would say he began to decompensate in Southern California as he started to commit these murders because his patterns did change a bit and they were not so similar, not so very similar until um, Cold Case in Orange County really started looking at them that you might conclude that they were the same killer. Uh, each of them had their own backstories that could absolutely justify it being someone else. So they go into a detailed explanation and they explain how they um, have used up this DNA. And this the description is so detailed, it, it honestly makes me pretty mad that they even need to justify the request at this level of specificity. Look at me spit out that word. It is no wonder this case is so complicated, but the prosecution does a great job of explaining why law, why law enforcement or the crime labs used up what they had. What they explain next is the new information that I hadn't heard before. So listen carefully. I'm not sure any of us have heard this before. And it describes, and I'll read it verbatim, how they got the initial DNA from D'Angelo, the initial DNA that day that allowed for the arrest, and then what happened when they had to obtain the first buckle sample in jail. Once again, it makes me want to rage at him. Here's the information straight out of the motion. 
Section C, the defendant's reference sample taken on Sacramento, taken in Sacramento, April 24, 2018. Through the efforts of dozens of scientists and experts, the above described collection and testing over the years showed that one male suspect left his semen at all eight of these crime scenes. Through extensive investigation after the CODIS hit, one suspect was identified as the potential source of that DNA, the defendant. He was put under surveillance and in April of 2018, a discarded facial tissue from the defendant was collected and analyzed by the Sacramento County Crime Laboratory. The tissue contained a single DNA profile and that DNA profile matched the profile from the sperm portion of the vaginal swab from Charlene Smith, Ventura County, and from Manuela Wathun, and therefore all eight of the crime scenes where DNA was obtained. This is the first time I've heard it's also from Manuela. That actually makes me feel really good um, because by, by the time he got to Manuela and Janelle, he had absolutely decompensated and those crimes were, I mean, they're all brutal, but they were just, uh, I'm going to add the word horrific. The defendant was arrested on April 24th and pursuant to a warrant issued at that time, a single buckle swab was for confirmation was collected the next day by the Sacramento Sheriff's Office, Lieutenant Paul Belli. Here we go. Now listen, guess what happened? At the time of collection, Lieutenant Belli explained that the collection method to explain the collection method to the defendant and asked him to take the buckle swab collection stick and place it in his mouth to facilitate collection of the sample. The defendant did not respond verbally or otherwise to this request. Lieutenant Belli then had to himself put the buckle swab collection stick into the defendant's mouth and collect the sample pursuant to the instructions for the kit. The defendant's post-arrest buckle swab was analyzed by the Sacramento District Attorney's Crime Lab and it matched the DNA profile from the tissue he had previously discarded, confirming his identity as the source of the unknown profile. Oh my God, what a piece of human garbage. He wouldn't even let the lieutenant take a buckle swab in an easy way. Nope, he had to make that hard too. Control, control, control. I know every victim listening to this that has survived is saying, yep, that's my guy. That's the mm, bad words. <laughs> I was going to really swear, but that's the beast that got me. That's exactly the kind of behavior I, I um, witnessed. There is a footnote here in, in this section that says the defendant's lack of cooperation to earlier attempts to attain a buckle swab justify an order by this court that law enforcement be allowed to use force to retrieve subsequent samples if necessary. So he didn't cooperate the first time and they're saying, I'll be damned if we're going to let him fight us this time. And if he won't cooperate, well, we'll just go on in and take it. I love it. I love it. There is some kick-ass stuff going on here in terms of these prosecutors. Okay, so here's, this is their argument now. Okay, so we've got this set up. Here are the relevant cases. Here's why the DNA was used up. Here's how we tried to get it the first time and it did not go well, but no matter what, it has continued to match, to match, to match. We have one defendant. We have the right defendant. You've got it. So now here's their argument where they're going to make the point to the judge. And it's section three, argument. The defendant's identity as a rapist, murderer, 
kidnapper and robber has been established in significant part by the matching DNA profiles generated in this case by multiple laboratories, laboratories encompassing multiple jurisdictions. While the responsibility of conducting DNA analysis on the crime scene evidence originally fell to the labs in the counties where the crimes occurred, Sacramento Crime Laboratory has become the jurisdictional and investigator, investigative epicenter for all of the defendants' known crimes, some charged and some uncharged. When it was first obtained and analyzed, the defendants' reference, buckle swab, and profile, um, uh, let's see, were, were a match. Additional buckle swabs are now necessary so that each lab involved in this case can independently generate the defendant's DNA profile from a buckle swab and compare it to the DNA profiles generated from crime scene evidence in its own validated protocols and procedures. Rather than present a comparison by crime scene sample to a reference sample and dive into the intricacies of each lab's protocols, the prosecution is entitled to put on a more efficient and streamlined case wherein each crime scene, sorry, I have to advance my computer, whereas each crime scene DNA profile is matched directly to the DNA, the defendant's DNA profile by the same lab, and in some cases, even by the same analyst with validated procedures and protocols. Again, okay, if you, so sorry, take a break here, but if you follow crime stories, you know, you know a clear chain of custody is really important. I mean, that's, I've been crowing like a, cock. Can I do that? I've been crowing all about the DNA that was kept in our freezer down in Ventura for 40 years. It was a second sample Dr. Speth took, and that's why they were able to match, match this to Charlene with such a clean chain of custody. So the other thing that can often be torn, torn apart in a crime case is the procedure that's used. So what they're trying to do here is set up a fundamentally tight process so that, that, so that nobody can pick apart that different jurisdictions made mistakes. Now, let's bring it into one lab. Let's have as few analysts as possible focus on the project, and let's make sure that process that we use is buttoned down so that there are no variables that can come up as um, opportunities for the defense. <sighs> okay, so I just, it's funny, I, I even wrote in my notes, like, I need to take a breath a minute and uh, and breathe in once again because I... No matter how, I do not know the crimes in Northern California that well. I know the people. I don't necessarily know the crimes. I'm not huge on wanting to know the crimes. It's probably evident why I don't want to know all the horrible things that happened. They, and now it's happening. You know, when I read it, it's about my friends or it's about my family and it, it creeps me out. But I still am blown away by the industriousness of this criminal. I, I have no idea how he even earned a paycheck. If you think about it, for all the things he was doing all the time, in fact, if you look at those counts I read yesterday, some of them are week after week or back to back. How the hell could he be earning a paycheck somewhere? So I feel like his wife had to know. And I guess I'm gonna be clear, this is my own hypothesis. But that's that she was knowledgeable about the rapes, and and I that was a long time ago, and I suspect she caught on to what was going on. But the caveat being, they were rapes, and after and she was a lawyer, so she knows after a certain amount of time, <clears throat> three years, these are not crimes that can be pursued. I don't know that she knew he graduated to murder. Why would he tell her? 
Why would she know? These happened with the exception of Snelling and the Maggiores. These all happened in Southern California. And those murders were really not intentional. I mean, they were murdered intentionally in the committing of a crime, but they were not something he really had planned out. He had to have, he had the gun and he did the crimes. But I could see that he might have not come home and, and owned that. And, that. and also, maybe we didn't put it together right away at the time. So I still believe she's culpable. Again, this is my own, my own feeling. I'm not basing this on any inside knowledge or anything. This I just feel like she is culpable and has been a co-conspirator. But I have nothing except my common sense that's leading me to that conclusion. And that timeout was uh, just about me taking in how many, very, very, very many people he hurt. And of course, I know he also terrorized a lot of people who aren't on any list of crimes anywhere. And that that goes that goes that speaks to his um, it just speaks to him being so evil. Okay, so all right, let me get you back on a positive note because you're gonna love this next next part. As I as I wrote in my notes, prosecutors got balls. Um, listen to this. They even throw in some points in parens in the document that um, I want to make sure that we get. And so I'm going to use my snarky voice when I read the parts that are in parens so you can catch up the shade that's been given here. But here we go. Let me try to do this really well so you can get the snark. The snark is mine, not theirs, although I love that it's in parens. There can be no question that the identity of the defendant is the main, perhaps the only issue in this case. Only is in italics. While factual similarities and the crime scene DNA link all eight crimes together, conclusive comparison from scene to scene to the defendant's DNA proves the defendant's guilt. None of the above victims could identify him. He attacked at night, disoriented and blinded his victims with the light, blindfolded them, made them look away, and occasionally wore a mask. The defendant peddled disinformation during the attacks, calling some victims by their real names, implying he knew them. He didn't. Demanding money and food, which he didn't need, and claiming he had a van, quotes around that, which he didn't have, or he murdered them. It's the people's burden to prove identity beyond a reasonable doubt. The people have received no offer from the defendant to stipulate to his identity as the culprit for all charged and uncharged offenses that will be presented in the upcoming trial, nor has he offered to stipulate to the propriety of the collection, transportation, extraction, amplification, interpretation, or comparison of any of the crime scene DNA samples or his own reference sample. In the absence of such broad stipulations by the defendant, the people must prove his culpability. Okay, I just love that part. Don't you Don't you just love it? It's very satisfying that they got a little bit snarky. Okay, so next they argue the case law. So this is typical in a motion. They, they bring up the case law that supports, supports their argument um, and that it, it's, it's about additional swabs. They um, also spank the defense pretty hard for making arguments that are just nonsense. I talked about that at the beginning where they say some of these are just fallacious arguments. Um, and then finally they conclude. And I feel like when I read this to you in a minute about uh, the conclusion. I, I wish I could cue up some kind of music, kind of some kind of powerful anthem music that would build as I read this, as they request the judge to lift the order and then let them get those samples. So 
here we go. Imagine in your head the music rising as I read this conclusion because I freaking love it. So it's section four, conclusion. As explained herein, there is no legal barrier to law enforcement obtaining additional non-testimonial evidence that will show conclusively the defendant's guilt at trial while saving countless hours of testimony and immense expense and avoiding confusion as the trier of fact. As the defendant acknowledges, the scope of this case is large and, if not well presented, complex. The court was correct to sign the original search warrant and the court will be correct in signing the requested order now. As the order is supported by probable cause to search the defendant and seize from him evidence that tends to show a felony has been committed and that a particular person has committed a felony within the meaning of Penal Code Section 1524A4. That the prosecution seeks solid evidence beyond reproach or criticism in a case of this magnitude in which the death penalty is being sought should be of no surprise. For the foregoing reasons, the people respectfully request the court explicitly state on the record that contrary to the allegations contained in the defendant's motion, the original search warrant obtained by the people did not constitution did not constitution a violation of the penal code, nor has there been any violation of the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to counsel. The people also request the court lift the defendant's order signed on February 5th, 2020 precluding the prosecution from attaining any additional evidence in this case. Okay, damn, I wish Aaron Sorkin had rewritten that. It's still good how it is written. I love it. It is so clear. It is so forceful. It is so declarative, and uh, it gets me fired up. So this is what's on the docket for Thursday. I'll be there, and I'll give you the details afterward as soon as I can. I have a speaking engagement that night in Sacramento, and I know a bunch of us are getting together Thursday afternoon just to talk through what it is we we really want. There's some folks that will be in town that haven't been here in a while. Um, so I might be a little late in podcasting, but I will get it done. So now let me leave you with just a little inspiration. There was one other footnote and they added just a little juice to let the judge know just because we have 26 active charges against this monster, they aren't stopping there. Here's the footnote and I'll hope you find it as satisfying as I do. Sacramento County is continuing to investigate crimes committed by the defendant in Costa Costa, Santa Barbara, San Joaquin, Stanislaus, Yolo, Santa Clara, and Alameda counties. It is now poised to conduct additional DNA testing on evidence, including possibly retesting, which may not occur in the same laboratory as originally tested, depending on availability. Oh, hell yeah, they aren't done. And frankly, neither are we. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Chewing on a piece of grass, walking down the 